Bitcoin is trying to disintermediate the fiat currencies, gold, and, other, and numerous other financial asset classes, as well as it's trying to disintermediate all the largest banks, credit card companies, SWIFT, all the settlement networks around the world, all the interbank networks around the world, Venmo, Cash App, and a lot of these other things. Essentially, it's competing against all of these simultaneously, and I would say succeeding over the last decade. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Murad Mamadov. Murad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. So many people know you from your old bullish Bitcoin podcast. One with Pomp in, in 2018 was, was fascinating to many people. But for those that don't know you, what's your background and how did you originally get into Bitcoin? So I'm originally from Azerbaijan, um, kind of born and raised there until I was about 17, 18 years old. Um, went to school in uh, the United States for bachelor's. Um, studied Chinese and finance. Um, during one of the years, I did an exchange abroad in China, in Beijing. And that was during the 2013-2014 sort of uh, bubble wave, uh, when Bitcoin suddenly went from $100 to over $1,000, uh, I believe November 2013. And um, essentially, during that time, I was friends with a few... Uh, American and Chinese people in Beijing who were involved in various Bitcoin related things. And sort of that was my early exposure to uh, BTC, uh, kind of was at the right place at the right time, you could say, and kind of been following the space super actively ever since, but particularly so 2016 onwards, right? And um, <clears throat> um, worked in TradFi in Hong Kong and in Singapore a little bit after school. But um, 2017, 2018 in particular onwards, I've been doing sort of various things in the, in the crypto space uh, ever since. Nice. Very cool. So if you were talking to someone that may be older, but very successful, at least financially successful, that, but they own zero BTC, how would you explain the importance of Bitcoin to them? How would you sell it to them? Yeah, for sure. So if you study monetary history, then every uh, single fiat regime um, can only last for so long. And um, if you compare the evolution of money, then you will realize that Bitcoin is simply a superior monetary good, both to gold and definitely to the current U.S. dollar global paradigm. Um, Bitcoin grows uh, through these boom and bust cycles, but nevertheless, it does grow. And uh, over the medium to long, over the medium and long term, the trajectory thus far has only been upwards. Um, it, according to portfolio theory, according to allocation theory, game theory, it makes sense to have at least two to five percent, if not more, of your portfolio allocated to this asset, precisely because of, of the fact that we are in the middle of. Um, sort of a monetary regime reset and monetary regime change, or at least in the early stages of it. And um, it's important to be on the right side of history. And it's important to own an asset that is the future of money rather than be invested in assets that is the money and the financial assets of the past. So 
uh, for that reason, it's definitely something that should be part of your portfolio right now. So when you compare Bitcoin to, you know, fiat currencies that inevitably fail, why is Bitcoin any different? Like what makes Bitcoin special? Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> um, there are many advantages that Bitcoin has over both the traditional monetary system as well as the current financial system. But monetarily speaking, um, Bitcoin is pursuing a monetary policy that is disinflationary, which means that the inflation rate of the creation of the supply of new units halves every four years. Um, judging from some of the Satoshi Nakamoto's uh, early uh, Bitcoin talk forum posts, I believe that some of the bailouts that we've seen in 2008, 2009, 2010 have been one of the three or four core inspirations or, or motivational forces that drove the creation of Bitcoin. And one of the things that Satoshi was frustrated with was that A, uh, the current system is one where sort of uh, large players or wealthy players, they get bailed out by the system at the expense of the taxpayer, while obviously um, the average folk sort of bear, uh, bear the brunt of this, right? Um, also, the fiat system or the, the central banks, they have the monopoly on the creation of money. Um, rather than money be in the economy being the product of the market or the product of the free will, so to speak, right? And um, because of this, um, the Bitcoin's goal is to sort of become a uh, savings vehicle that doesn't erode its value or its worth uh, over time, like current fiat does, right? For some reason, and, and nobody knows exactly where this came from, um, I believe this came from a certain a New Zealand sort of e econometrist, but people say, oh, like two, two and a half percent inflation is like optimal for the economy, right? But I believe that it's an economic myth because sort of the um, powers in the current sort of um, largest governments and the largest banks, they obviously benefit from being closest to the um, source of money creation, right? And an inflationary system definitely benefits them. While Bitcoin um, is aiming to create sort of a vessel where you can save the fruits of your labor across time. And, and, and that's what it is aiming to achieve. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. In the Bitcoin community, we have this kind of people talk about this term called hyper Bitcoinization, which I think can mean different things to different people, whether it's Bitcoin being a treasury reserve asset for individuals, corporations, governments, or Bitcoin being this kind of world reserve currency that's not only just the savings technology, but is a medium of exchange. How would you define hyper Bitcoinization? And do you think that it can occur? I think it, I think it can certainly occur. Um, <clears throat> because the nature of fiat money is such that it requires constant economic expansion in order to stay afloat. As long as um, the, the expan when, when the expansion slows down or, God forbid, actually shrinks, then the fiat system or, or the sort of the constantly expanding credit system that's underlying it, it cannot sustain itself any longer. And um, no attempt at fiat money uh, or kind of uh, tight monetary control has survived 
over over a long period, right? You can say that the Romans manipulating sort of the metal content in their coins, uh, obviously widely considered to be one of the reasons for the falling apart of the Roman Empire. Uh, the ancient Chinese a few times have also tried sort of using paper money that's not backed by anything um, in, in sort of this charterist manner as the de facto money. But obviously that has led to certain hyperinflationary periods as well. Um, ultimately, I do believe that the internet will produce um, a money that will supplant in its power and size all of the current uh, government mandated currencies in the world. And as it currently stands, I believe Bitcoin has the highest chance of becoming that dominant currency. Um, and yeah, hyper Bitcoinization, uh, I believe in 2013, 2014, it started off as almost like a meme like concept, but every year it's looking more and more likely. Not every year, but I should say every cycle, uh, every sort of Bitcoin halving, it's looking more and more likely as of right now. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to think about how people will value Bitcoin in 10, 20 years. What do you think the quote unquote terminal value of Bitcoin, or maybe there won't be a terminal value, maybe it will grow with GDP into perpetuity. Um, how do you think about the terminal value of Bitcoin? Like when you're comparing it to other asset classes, like do you see it becoming the gold 2.0 and Bitcoin being worth $10 trillion? Do you see it becoming this world reserve currency asset and maybe taking share from bonds, real estate, equities, and maybe becoming a $100 trillion asset? Where do you think the, the line is drawn on what Bitcoin's total market value could potentially be? So <clears throat> in order to compare or in order to answer that question, we need to look at kind of the current um, market sizes of some of these things, right? Um, first of all, people estimate that all the fiat money in the world, over $100 trillion in value. Um, stocks, several hundred trillion. Obviously, bonds, also several hundred trillion. Um, real estate, also several hundred trillion, right? People use all of these as saving vehicles today. A lot of dozens of people in the Bitcoin space have uh, argued time and time again that because the current fiat money is inflationary, it actually makes it so that the current medium of exchange slash store of value in the money form, uh, which is the US dollar, the euro, etc., it's actually smaller than what, what it's supposed to be because essentially people are almost forced by government policy to go into um, kind of stocks, bonds, and other asset classes. Um, so Bitcoiners believe that a deflationary monetary paradigm will lead to a bit of an exodus, right? From uh, a little bit from stocks, a little bit from bonds, a little bit from commercial residential real estate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they believe that if Bitcoin becomes like the US dollar or, or even bigger, then it's sort of quote unquote market cap is going to be even larger, right? Um, a lot of people similarly in the same uh, vein have argued that um, they've argued that sort of real estate is also like kind of more expensive than it, what, what it's supposed to be because a lot of the uh, middle classes, upper middle classes, upper classes around the world are using real estate as almost like a way to preserve wealth. Right. And um, because like the bank accounts don't pay out anymore as much as they did like 20, 30 years ago, um, the fiat money itself obviously eroding by the second. And so people are essentially like forced along the risk curve. Right. So super crudely speaking, 
Um, I think 150 trillion, something like that is definitely realistic. Like if we're talking like far, far future. Um, now, then the question becomes, is the market of future money uh, winner take all or winner take most? Um, it might even be more winner take all than it is today. Uh, I believe the US dollar represents about 60% of the um, kind of like the, the, the sort of the apple pie share among the current fiat currencies. Um, <clears throat> so essentially, I think like if we lived in a perfect computer simulation simulated world and, and the internet definitely helps with this argument, then it would trend towards winner take all. However, I think that like for the next couple of decades, it's going to persist being more like winner take most or like three, four, five sort of chains slash coins in a decaying fashion, so to speak. But um, I still think that Bitcoin will remain number one for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so how do you envision this world under a Bitcoin standard? I know like in today's world, everyone's incentivized to take out debt. Um, you, everyone gets you know a 30-year mortgage. They try to borrow as much money as possible. They do leverage buyouts on, on large corporations. It's all about getting debt and buying real assets. Under a Bitcoin standard, I personally don't think that that will be the case, or at least it'll be significantly smaller than what it is today, the, the debt portion of the financial system. How do you think about that? How do you think that will develop over time? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I'm no expert in deflationary economics, but I have read a few books uh, by some of the Austrians who have analyzed the sort of the nature of the economy during the gold standard and kind of the years that preceded uh, that era. The general consensus, I believe, is that the amount of debt or the credit portion of the economy will shrink while uh, sort of a lot of the financing will become more equity based. A lot of the investment will also become more equity based and people will simply pursue uh, sort of uh, the real economy uh, sort of more in, in relative terms than today and sort of the, the sort of the hard assets, commodities and just sort of the more it will be more equity based rather than debt based is what some of the biggest experts on sort of like deflationary monetary design believe is going to end up being the case. Yeah, definitely. Do you think the current system is extremely fragile right now? Do you think it's possible that we go through a prolonged period of, of high inflation or, or even hopefully this doesn't happen, but hyperinflation? Do you think that's possible or do you think that, you know, it's more likely that Bitcoin continues to, to rapidly grow in price over, you know, the coming decades, but the dollar and other fiat currencies will still exist, you know, together? So it's anyone it's anyone's guess when this is going to happen, but we are either going to see a hyperinflation or a default, right? And if you study kind of human history, inflation is always the chosen path by governments rather than uh, announcing default, which is pretty much announcing failure. So in my mind, inflation hyperinflation isn't possible, it's likely. Uh, in fact, it's probably inevitable. And whether that happens five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, it's anyone's guess. I do think that we are slowly approaching sort of the tail end of the current monetary regime or the monetary paradigm. Um, 
I believe that, I mean, there's a famous infographic when um, like the Dutch currency was dominant for about 100 years, then it was like the British pound for 120 years. Now, I believe the US dollar in one form or another has been dominating for just over a century, right? So um, the, there's definitely a shelf life to, to a lot of these things. Um, and I think that we are definitely going to see something like this uh, in our lifetime. Obviously, the growing debt of most uh, large governments relative to GDP growth is uh, also a growing concern that will probably accelerate this issue. And I do believe that the world will slowly sort of, I mean, you can imagine these things as two balloons, like super simply speaking, right? One is like fiat money, another one is Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And we're gradually seeing, we've already been seeing it for a decade, right? Um, it just happens in like pulses, so to speak, right? And um, essentially wealth is flowing through from fiat sort of jar to the cryptocurrency jar. And um, I just think it's going to continue. And the more inflation that you generally see on the fiat side, the more monetary expansion, money supply growth that you see on the fiat side, the faster this process is going to happen. So um, now the interesting part is the following. Um, we've seen many instances of inflation and hyperinflation in world history. Um, in Weimar Republic, Zimbabwe, many other examples. But famously, all, all of these were localized because the world as a whole was never as globalized as it is today, right? And everything is like a hundred times more interconnected, uh, a, a thousand times sort of more uh, intricately linked than it was even during the 1920s Weimar era, right? And so because of this, uh, the weird or, or, or the harsh possibility in the medium term future is seeing hyperinflation not on a government one government stage but on a global stage right and essentially we've never seen it at such a large scale so it's anyone's guess how it's going to happen now some bitcoiners believe that the shift from fiat to uh, btc is going to be more gradual uh, some think it's going to be sort of more slow and long term others think it's going to be like more sharp and violent right while others kind of believe it's going to keep happening in these sort of pulses that we've seen thus far. But essentially, the rule of thumb, in my opinion, is more inflation, more monetary expansion, more money printing, the faster Bitcoin is gonna grow. As people will realize that essentially, uh, dollars, euros, yuans, whatever it is, they're bad at saving money, even for weeks or months at this stage, right? So you have to find new avenues. And in these sort of bubbly periods of volatility, they really are sort of informational waves and people learn with each bubble, people study, the user base grows. And the bigger the market cap gets, the more liquid and less volatile Bitcoin becomes. And so it becomes better as an actual savings vehicle. And it's just going to continue happening. Yeah, that makes sense. So how would you respond if, if someone that's maybe not following financial markets too closely, they see, hey, inflation is near record highs, but Bitcoin has been down, you know, year over year significantly. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so technically Bitcoin isn't a hedge to inflation. Uh, it's a hedge to monetary expansion. And inflation usually follows monetary expansion with a delay, right? But if you actually chart uh, a monetary expansion graph, as well as the Bitcoin price graph, um, and or actually to be precise, the rates of change of both of these, then they go hand in hand and they have for the past six or seven years. 
So really the correct description of Bitcoin, in my opinion, is uh, sort of a hedge against monetary expansion rather than inflation per se. Inflation is simply a byproduct of um, the actions that governments and central banks have been taking. Definitely. I think that I think that's very accurate. You talked about how this transition, many people in the space debate it. It could be, you know, treacherous. It could be peaceful. We don't really know if it is treacherous or if, you know, the money printing gets to a scale of something that's extremely unprecedented and it's all over the world at one time. Where else? Like, does it make sense to be extremely, extremely allocated to Bitcoin or does it make sense to maybe have more of a diversified portfolio at that point. Maybe it makes sense to have, you know, energy production assets or, or food production assets. So when there's this violent transition, you might be able to sell energy and food for, for large amounts of Bitcoin if the world is extremely unstable. Do you think about that at all? Or how else are you looking to allocate capital? I'm personally like not a doomer or a prepper, but I do think that owning um, <clears throat> a certain amount of sort of food, uh, at least... Uh, for a few, like to last you a few months, uh, guns in the in a country if that's legal uh, in your particular situation. Um, ideally, real estate or multiple uh, multiple sort of real estate units that are in a relatively non-violent area right now and would be in a non-violent area in a situation where there's like global chaos. Um, gold, silver, and cryptocurrency, and Bitcoin, and, and maybe a few other cryptocurrencies for sure. Uh, so I would say like these are the primary things that I would consider. Yeah, definitely. I guess, and, and I think it's important for the audience to understand that some Bitcoiners think that the transition could be rough, but I think many or most Bitcoiners think that after the transition, the world will be a more fair and equitable place. Would you would you agree with that? I guess. <clears throat> Honestly, I think the black pill is um, it might even be more unequal than it is today. But the promise of Bitcoin was never a world of equality or like a communist utopia, right? The promise of Bitcoin was to create a savings vehicle where you can like earn money, provide a service, build a product, and use Bitcoin as a savings vehicle without uh, worrying that. People are just a, a bunch of like eight old men in a room are going to erode your wealth at will, right? And so <clears throat> the promise of Bitcoin is to create a place where you can park your money and sleep stress-free rather than to create a world of equality. Now, today's world is already extremely unequal as is because obviously, well, one of the five reasons for that is because certain individuals are closer to the sort of the printing press spigots than others, right? But um, I believe that essentially we will see ceteris paribus, there, there will be a wealth transfer between um, current leaders of TradFi institutions to um, essentially people that were uh, early to Bitcoin's history, uh, current, obviously currently large Bitcoin holders, uh, just like anarchists, computer scientists, early Silk Road users, etc. Definitely. How do you see this transition playing out on a geopolitical level? I think like, <clears throat> like you're saying that we're probably going to go through a period of time where the money printing and the physical stimulus gets completely out of control. 
How do you see nation states adopting Bitcoin? Do you see nation states adopting Bitcoin? I know we have El Salvador, but do you see maybe U.S., China, or Russia playing a key role in the near future? Yeah, so I don't think U.S. will do anything in the near term in, term, in terms of announcing any buys, obviously, because they arguably have the most to lose because they control the current financial status quo, obviously. Uh, the biggest... People like to jokingly say that the biggest export of the United States is the U.S. dollar. And um, the United States of America definitely enjoys a lot of privileges because it's, because it's their money, right? Um, China, um, probably not anytime soon either because um, a ban on Bitcoin essentially, or sorry, a ban on Bitcoin mining uh, back in 2021 represented that at least in the short to medium term, the current Chinese leadership is probably not looking to make any major BTC buys anytime soon. Now, I actually think that the fact that a lot of the Bitcoin mining moved from um, China to the Western world is very good because um, they're, I mean, in my mind, like essentially every country is authoritarian, but at least in the West, uh, there is a little bit more respect towards um, personal freedoms, entrepreneurship, like individual rights, etc. right? And so it's much better in my mind that uh, the miners are um, generally relocating there. But um, Russia, I mean, it, they seem like a large landmass, but their economy is smaller than Italy's. So it doesn't really matter. Um, I don't think it would be good to have like Iran, North Korea, Russia as like the main headlines side by side, uh, word by word with Bitcoin, because it just looks bad. Uh, so ideally, we would rather have somebody like Switzerland or Singapore or South Korea buying some Bitcoin. And who knows? Maybe they already are. You, we know that some of these large sovereign wealth funds are investing into crypto, Web3, and even Bitcoin-related companies on the VC, on sort of on the VC slash equity side of things, right? So there's definitely smart individuals in those rooms. Uh, whether they're buying Bitcoin or not, even if they are, they cannot talk about it because that would just cause so much drama, right? So um, I, if I were to speculate, they're definitely already dipping their toes. Um, obviously, some of these boards and some of these central banks and sovereign wealth funds, they have people that aren't 80 years, old, 80 years old, like in some countries, but more like 40 years old. So they understand computers and technology. So they're much more likely to see what's going on. Um, but we're definitely going to have a country sooner or later that is um, more impactful than El Salvador. Everything happens gradually, right? So the large countries, they're going to adopt it last, uh, precisely because they have the most to lose from their fiat um, sort of uh, fiat privileges, right? But um, it's definitely going to happen in my mind. Do you think Bitcoin as a technology takes power away from large governments or even just large corporations or institutions that happen to be close to the money printer right now? Yeah, without a doubt, uh, both on the monetary unit side as well as on the payment network side. Um, essentially, Bitcoin is trying to disintermediate the fiat currencies, gold, and, other, and numerous other financial asset classes uh, on the monetary unit side, as well as it's trying to disintermediate all the largest banks, credit card companies, uh, SWIFT, uh, all the settlement networks around the world, all the interbank networks around the world, uh, Venmo, uh, Cash App, and a lot of these other things. Essentially, it's competing against all of these simultaneously, and I would say succeeding over the last decade.
this may be a bit of a controversial question, but do you, so, so if Bitcoin does take power away from, from these large institutions, is there any concern that maybe institutions or, or, or large governments like China will be able to kind of like cut off Bitcoin and retain their power over their populace, whereas the West kind of decentralizes into no clear leadership? Um, if that were to happen, then essentially the Western populations would effectively win at the expense of the Chinese populations. Now, I don't think it's so black and white because we know for a fact that some of the wealthiest uh, or the largest BTC holders are Chinese individuals. So really, there will be winners and losers in both countries. Um, it's important to understand, and I believe a lot of very intelligent Bitcoiners have spoken about this on dozens of podcasts, but essentially, <clears throat> um, Austrian economists and subjective value theorists, they like to compare, they like to say that there's selfish motivations of one individual man, and there's also motivations of the institution or the government or the company that he represents, right? And oftentimes, those are not the same, right? So if inflation keeps happening, you are very much likely to see um, individual employees of some of these institutions or even the leadership people or their children or their uncles, whatever, um, start reallocating money from their own uh, bank accounts to BTC and other technologies of, of, of similar nature, right? And so um, I think on an individual level, that's where these things take change, right? It takes change in the chemistry of the brain of people first before it happens at a country scale. So it's really individual by individual that we really should be focusing on in terms of growth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other day you, you tweeted this, this, interest, this tweet I thought that was pretty interesting. You said, order is an illusion and we live in complete chaos. Can you expand on what you meant by that? Yeah, essentially, um, I've noticed that like a lot of my like friends or other kind of builders in the space or traders, or it doesn't matter. Essentially, they were like ex they were like too fat fatalistic, and they were they a lot of them thought that like destiny is predestined and they can't control. There's no power of will, anything like that. And essentially, the point that I wanted to make was that future is unpredictable, and there's like almost like an infinity of outcomes. And no one knows like what things are going to happen. But one thing that we can be certain of is that change will occur in one form or another. And it is up to us to kind of um, listen and, and observe reality as sort of patiently and carefully as we can and to see how we can um, sort of take advantage of some of the incoming changes. But because change always brings about opportunity. Definitely. It makes a lot of sense. Um, tell us about F STFX and, and what you're building. Yeah, so essentially STFX is um, a platform to turn any uh, single trade idea into a, sort of a mini fund or a vault, right? Um, essentially, since 2021, you've seen this voltification of everything trend in DeFi uh, across numerous chains. Essentially, a lot of different um, trading strategies and structured products have been getting packaged into these vaults, right? 
Um, essentially, the purpose of a vault is to take any kind of strategy or an idea um, that requires multiple steps and sort of to uh, turn it into this like one-click investment vehicle, right? We've seen this most famously with options. We've seen this with uh, yield farming and liquidity management, etc. Um, but most of these thus far have focused on yield generation. Uh, ours are sort of more aggressive vaults that are essentially focused on directional swing uh, and day trades. And essentially, uh, our platform is completely permissionless. Anybody can come in and sort of build these little vaults uh, and um, essentially be able to both fundraise for them and invest in others in a matter of a few clicks and a few minutes. Uh, you can think of it as a Kickstarter for trading ideas, pretty much. Nice, very cool. I'm curious, what was the process like for raising capital for your seed round? I thought it was pretty cool that you know you posted on Twitter a long list of all angel investors from from crypto Twitter. And I thought it was you know an interesting thing to do that I haven't seen you know early stage companies do. How was that process of raising that capital, and what did you learn along the way? Yeah, so um, essentially, um, like our team, and, and um, I'm obviously I'm one of the founders, but not the only one. There was like five or six of us early on, and now it's almost twenty people. But essentially, we believe that we're building. So we always believe that like in DeFi, community is the most important thing. And um, <clears throat> the sort of category that we are positioning ourselves in, we call it SocialFi because it essentially has both components of DeFi as well as sort of different social networks. Um, and because it is SocialFi, it is super important for us to be like crypto Twitter native and decentralized as much as possible early on. So um, a lot of uh, sort of angels, crypto Twitter traders, even a handful of VCs, um, they have wanted larger allocations, like to the tune of two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. But we usually kept it to uh, somewhere between thirty and seventy thousand because we deliberately wanted um, kind of the early ownership, even at seed stage level, to be as decentralized as we can. Right. So because we're building in SocialFi, uh, because the community is so important, um, we deliberately kind of lowered ticket sizes and instead increased the amount of people that would be involved in in one way or another. Um, very few VC, only two or three VCs and smaller checks at that. And the rest, like 55 out of 62 people are just kind of crypto Twitter personalities or people you often see in like Telegram chats and Discord chats and stuff like that. So we are very happy about that. It was a little bit sort of probably more difficult to do than it would have been during the bull market because we were doing this kind of in the spring and early summer that just passed. But nevertheless, we managed to get it done raised uh, just slightly over $2 million and at relatively um, fair or even modest valuations, you could say, compared to the past peaks of the bull market, um, raised $2 million in exchange for 10% of a $20 million fully diluted valuation, which we think is fair. And um, essentially, since then, for the past four or five months, we've just been heads down building. Nice. Well, congrats on that. I think that's you know an awesome accomplishment and excited to see you know where it goes from here. One last question and then we can uh, wrap it up. I'm curious to know your thoughts on like the current state of, of quote unquote DeFi, but on Bitcoin. You know, there's things like RSK, which is like a second layer solution of Bitcoin where companies like Sovereign are building things like the Zero Protocol, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but maybe. But 
do you think there's potential on, on building on top of Bitcoin or, or, or not? Yeah, no. Uh, some of my smartest friends in the space are quite bullish um, Bitcoin DeFi, so to speak. And I'm personally quite close to some of the members of a project called Collider, which is essentially um, a derivatives trading platform that's being built on top of Lightning. Um, quite smooth UI, quite smooth UX. And I believe we're seeing more and more uh, sort of financial infrastructure uh, and, and other DeFi applications that we've seen on other chains slowly make their way to Bitcoin, um, most notably on top of the Lightning Network. So I believe we're definitely going to see more and more of that as, as well, for sure. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. I haven't heard that before. But cool. I think this was a fantastic conversation on, on Bitcoin and, and DeFi and everything. Um, where can the audience go to find you after this and where can they learn about your company? Yeah, so I'm at uh, Twitter at MustStopMurad um, and the same handle on all the other you know, platforms, chat apps and everything else. So um, DMs are open. Feel free to hit me up whenever. Awesome. Murad, thanks for coming on the podcast. I thought this was great. Absolutely, man. And thank you for having me. Thank you.